Thank God it's Free Range. You are listening to Free Range Radio Friday with your host, Michael Elves. Pour yourself a beverage and turn up the volume because here on 101.5 UMFM, the weekend starts now. Don't be 
Brooklyn. 101.5 UMFM. This is Thank God It's Free Range, the Friday edition of Free Range Radio. I'm Michael Elves and kicking things off for us tonight. Sequestered in Memphis, one of my favorites from the Hold City. That's from an album available on their band camp called Live at Brooklyn Bowl, November 28th, 2022. Uh, playing that for a couple reasons. One, it's Bandcamp Friday still, so if you're hearing this and you have yet to buy anything to support artists directly through Bandcamp, this is the day that the site waves its fees and more money goes to the artists. Uh, also, they're playing down at the Minnesota State Fair. My pal Jared Mikidiak, our station manager, down there checking them out this weekend. And, uh, well, wanted to play some live stuff from them. And then also because... Uh, uh, they're former Minnesotans, and uh, the topic of one of my uh, interviews tonight is with a former Minnesotan. Uh, I talked to Ray Paget about his new book, Pledging My Time. It's interviews with a bunch of people who have played with Bob Dylan over the years. Uh, really, ultimately, this is going to air on my show, Turning Pages, but we're uh, about to enter the uh, festival season. The Winnipeg International uh, Writers Fest is coming up, and uh, I... We'll be busy with interviews with authors that are appearing at that festival. And so I don't know when the pageant interview would air otherwise on turning pages. So uh, it's a music thing, and this is a music program. So figured I would give it an airplay here. That's coming up around 7 o'clock. Before we get to that, though, brand new today, Everything is Alive, the new album from Slow Dive. Going to play you my favorite from that record. This is Chained to a Cloud. Keep it locked here on 101.5 UMFM.
everything, everything. I 
brand new single from German duo Lamila that's in between. Before that, Sophia Talvik with Meanwhile in Winsboro off of her album Center of the Universe. Definitely one of my favorite folk records of the last couple months. Sleepy Jean with Like a Lover from Shoot Me in a Dream before that. Joey O'Neill, who was a past guest here on the show with the title track to her new album Phantom Vibes. And we started that set off with Slow Dive. Coming up after the break... My interview with Ray Paget talking about his Bob Dylan book. Keep it locked here on 101.5 UMFM. All right. Well, his conversations with Bob Dylan band members is called Pledging My Time. Ray Paget joins me on the show to talk about the book. Welcome, Ray. Thanks so much for having me. So before we get into the book, I want to get into your interest in Bob Dylan. Because uh, you you started a newsletter, you know, looking at uh, Bob Dylan live performances and stuff. What what led you to Bob originally? Yeah, I mean, the newsletter was only a few years ago, but I've been deep into Dylan um, for a couple decades now. In high school, uh, my dad took me to my first show. This is in two thousand four, and it just you know, I I think I knew the greatest hits at that point already. He had a couple old vinyl albums I'd listened to, but seeing it live sort of blew me away, just in terms of how different it was than the sort of you know, oldies show, to put it bluntly, that I might have expected, you know, strum the acoustic guitar and sing Blown in the Wind and everyone puts their lighters up. Very different experience at a Bob Dylan show. Um, and from there, I just sort of went deep, started digging around for bootlegs and uh, becoming fairly obsessive. Yeah, and this is a guy, obviously, there's a ton of bootlegs out there. Like, do you think you could have had the level of interest and, you know, generated a book out of some other artist considering like there's there's a, such a cornucopia of stuff out there for for bob like there's obsessives who you know taped all these different shows and you you had all this material that kind of like let you go down this rabbit hole in a way i don't know if there is another artist that this work for because in a way it's the perfect combination of on the one hand what you're talking about enormous amount of material right on the other hand he's a fairly mysterious guy enigmatic weird strange a lot that's not known about him, right? Someone that's, you know, I don't know, more, maybe you'd say normal, uh, maybe wouldn't have this amount of amazing sort of backstage stories that would generate a book like this. For sure. Now, you do write in the preface that essentially some of these recaps and interviews started for the newsletter. Was there an eye on a book eventually when you started doing those things on the newsletter? Or was it the success of the newsletter that kind of birthed the book very much the latter the newsletter um which is you know still ongoing was you know one of these sort of pandemic projects early on i had a lot of free time i was like yeah, i'll write about you know bob dylan concerts that's pretty niche and obscure um i i started interviewing musicians just because i kept having questions when i listened to the things but again there i was thinking it's pretty niche these are not there's a few famous names in the book, but early in the newsletter, these were not at all famous names. They were like one guy who played saxophone for one show, you know, and I couldn't believe how many people were reading these, like thousands and thousands of people, these really deep dives into playing with Bob Dylan. And so it was after I did, I don't know, maybe four or five of those in the newsletter, and they all seemed like they blew up far bigger than I expected them to. That's when I sort of started conceiving of this as a book. So at that point, do you then kind of build out your list of people you want to contact? Like, like how did you kind of arrive at the the folks you ended up talking to for the book? And was there a much larger list that, you know, maybe you didn't have success tracking some people down? Or was this kind of like the people you intended to talk to, you got to talk to? 
I got most of the people I really hoped to. There was a much longer list. I mean, I've made lists and uh, giant Excel spreadsheets of here's all the people who are officially part of his band. And here's all the people who sat in it a few times. And maybe they have, you know, good stories about that. Um, unfortunately, to some degree, I wish I'd written this book, you know, 30 years ago, because a number of the people that I would Google who are on these lists are no longer with us. Um, but of the ones who were, I was able to get a lot of the ones I hoped to. Was there any resistance or like anyone who was like, nah, I don't want to talk about that? Oh, almost everyone <laughs> said that at first. I mean, most of these people haven't really talked about their time with Bob Dylan before. And the reason is that it sort of comes from the top. Bob Dylan is a very private person. Everyone knows this. And the band members sort of take their cues from that. They don't want to do anything that seems like it would be violating his privacy. They don't want to do some interview where it's going to be a gotcha question and their quote's going to get taken out of context and a salacious headline that'll get them in trouble, you know. So it took a while and sort of me showing them other interviews I had done for them to see that I was A, very knowledgeable, B, sure, there are a lot of behind the scenes stories, but it's always about the music first. It's really about the creation of what they did during their time, however long or short it was, with Dylan. And then, you know, a lot of it honestly was one person, you know, I talked to Ben Montench from the Heartbreakers and he'd say, hey, that was actually, you know, really fun. You should talk to Jim Keltner. I'll tell Jim to give you a call. You know, that sort of thing. The recommendations were huge because there is there was initially a, a lot of resistance to this idea. Now, was that resistance like right when you were doing just the newsletter part of it and getting some of those first few people to participate or more so when it became this is going to be a book project? It was the it was the hardest at first. Getting the first few were very difficult. Having the newsletter helped in the sense that I could show I didn't they didn't just need to take my word that, oh, it's going to be substantive and in depth. I could show a newsletter one that had already ran. They could read it. And in many cases, they did. A lot of the people clearly had taken the time to read the other ones I published and they could see, oh, yeah, it is substantive. It is in depth. Yes, there are tons of behind the scenes stories, but it's not just someone calling up and going, oh, uh, so what's Bob Dylan really like? you know, <laughs> which I think is what they're n nervous about. Right. And as you, you mentioned in the introduction that like you want this to be much more A than Q&A, that like the focus is not on on the questions necessarily. And you you kind of take a backseat and let the, the conversation go where it goes with these answers they provide in, mo in most senses. Well, that's how it reads in the book. In the actual conversations, there's a lot more back and forth just mm. because memories need to be jogged. I am constantly, you know, I know my, I know a lot of stuff and I do a lot of research for these. So I'm constantly jumping in. What year was that? Oh, is that the same show that this happened? What did you think about that? How did Dylan react to that? You know, there's a lot more back and forth, but then when I, you know, these are edited, of course, I, as much as possible, I took myself out because that's fairly boring to read me jumping in every five seconds um, and let them sort of tell the story in their own words. Okay, so there's more coaxing going on than, than there's a lot suggested of coaxing, yeah. in the actual book. Okay. <laughs> a lot a lot of coaxing. I got you. Because sometimes, you know, like uh, thinking about like the Ramblin' Jack Elliott one, like as you say in, in the preface to that one, it's like, you know, he, he gets the name Ramblin' Jack for a reason. <laughs> like, he yeah, kind of circles around the story. That would be an exception to this rule. Honestly, the first like three pages are just him talking. And I think if you listen to the audio, it's probably it pretty much was like that. He just talked for 10 minutes. And I was like, well, this is all gold. I don't need to do anything. But most people were not uh, quite as loquacious. Uh, so in terms of those that the research process, then when you're going to talk to these individual people, like. Are you like 
researching that person and like their own biography and kind of where they were at or is it really restricted to kind of like their time with Bob like how, how much do you need to know about that person on their own or versus in relation to Bob when you you know start talking to them and, and how much of the research is like biographical versus bobographical it's both I try to make sure I know who they were at the time you know, were they already a super successful, famous session musician or were they some nobody that Bob happened to run into at a store, you know, guitar store? And um, so I, it helps to know all that. That being said, and I tell the people up front, we're really going to be focusing on your time with Dylan. This is not a career spanning interview. For some people, their time with Dylan is a huge part of their career. For some people, it's like one year in a 40 year career. But I, you know, I let them know up front, we're really honing in on sort of the work you did with Dylan and occasionally something else will come up and that's fine, but it's not the sort of, so how did you get your start kind of conversation? So, so you're honing in on specific questions rather than asking like open-ended questions about them and Bob? It's, it's both. Um, some of them are open-ended, but I also have a lot of very specific questions about specific shows, specific performances, you know, notable, you'd look through all the times they played with Dylan and you say, oh, okay. So this one time they played, Larry Campbell played for the Pope. And then a year later they did this Grammy awards performance where soy bomb, you know, where the, there was a crazy dancer who crashed a thing. And then a year later, this, this, there was this other famous performance. So it helps. There's plenty of open-ended. So what was it like? You know, how did rehearsals work? What was your experience? Did you know a lot of his songs? There's a lot of stuff like that, but you know, that, that can only get you so far. It helped. And a lot of the like really specific stories and anecdotes came from me coming in, asking these extremely specific questions. Did you bump up against any issues where there were gaps in the research, like that you maybe didn't know about certain things that had happened or, or periods just, you know, like there's, I'm thinking of like, there's a, a PBS recording that the, the tape, was never kept or something right and and so so you don't know what happened during that performance right unless you like watched it on pbs at the time it broadcast and chances are you didn't so uh, like how do you kind of address those kind of lack of information yeah given it's given that it's bob dylan there's more of that than you might expect i think the one you're referring to is this thing he did on a local pbs station with alan ginsburg not when he's some nobody but like in the 70s he's already a famous and both of them both bob of them, dylan yeah. and alan ginsburg yeah and so the fact that like the station threw away the tape and no one <laughs> managed to record it it's just gone so you know you you read as much as you can about it and then you ask you know in this case i think it was happy Traum who was one who performed on that show with them you just ask them what do they remember about it and hopefully you can get some good stories and more information that way since you can't see it for yourself you mentioned ben mutt you know you did the interview with ben mutton and he's like hey this was great let me recommend you did a lot of things come that way like kind of you know pat playing a game of telephone and kind of following following players down the rabbit hole like or was it more once you had you know some proof of concept with these newsletters you could approach any person who'd been with Dylan and say, hey, this is what I'm doing. I'd like you to participate. Probably the most frustrating and boring part of the process was simply figuring out how to contact these people. <laughs> because with some exceptions, you know, there's Richard Thompson or Jeff Bridges, or like some of these are public people who have websites and publicists, right? But a lot of these people are like studio guys, session guys, they don't have a website because why would they need a website? They're not making albums under their own name. 
So yeah, a huge amount of it was people recommending me and literally giving me the email or phone number of someone because it it was very hard to track a number of these people down. So then it, it, like it's it's the hustle. A lot of this is it, like the research and the hustle and and then maybe the interviews is kind of the the easiest part in some sense or or am I maybe putting too much stock in in the interview being an easier portion? I don't know if it's easier. It's certainly more fun. Right. I mean, trying to, you know, troll the deepest corners of the internet to find someone's phone number is extremely uh, not fun. But then, yeah, once you're actually in the conversations, it's it's great. I mean, hearing the, you know, I'm hearing these stories directly from the people themselves, and I'm enjoying them as much as hopefully the people reading them later are. Right. Now, you did obviously a, a ton of research, and like, you know, you get praised for your research by the interview subjects at, at times in, in the, uh, the answers. But uh, one thing, so I was reading the Martin Carthy one and he talked about, you know, people who rely on the recordings for when he wrote stuff is mis are misguided, right? That like sometimes when the recording existed, that, that song may have existed several years prior. And so like where you bump up against like the record versus, and I, and I mean the record, not the album, physical album, but you know, the record of when things happened in your research, did you bump up against things where like maybe you had it wrong because something didn't physically exist till a certain point, but certain players or certain people knew, oh yeah, that song was, he read, he sang that in my like living room three years prior while we were drinking wine or something, right? Like that, those, those kinds of opportunities for ambiguity existed. Yes. And particularly you mentioned Martin Carthy, particularly in those early days before yeah. he was famous, before everything he jotted was filed with the copyright age, you know, now it seems like it might not be public, but it's 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 there. It's, you know, things get registered. He has he has people, his business people that are keeping track of this stuff. But yeah, in the 60s, it's so, you know, one guy will say he debuted hard. He came on the stage in Greenwich Village and he played Hard Rain's Gonna Fall for the first time ever. But then you look at the record and you say, actually, he played Hard Rain's Gonna Fall for the first time ever at a different coffee house, you know, six weeks before that one. So it's a little, and, you know, and a lot of that stuff's not recorded either, because again, he wasn't that famous yet. So that, those early compositions, a lot of it's fairly fuzzy. So then for, for your own research, prepping for these interviews with someone like a Martin Carthy, then like, is there a dearth of information? Like, were you finding areas where you just couldn't piece together what happened and, and you had to ask maybe more open-ended questions or more probing questions because you didn't have some of that stuff at hand? Yes. For instance, Martin Carthy, there, Bob Dylan, his first trip to the UK, still fairly obscure. Uh, he, he, he sort of goes around with Martin Carthy for, to all these different clubs. There's one in which, I actually, so I should say two, in which there's a photographer there. So those become sort of the more famous ones, just because at least you can see them, right? So people sort of know those ones. But Martin Carthy is telling me about all these other times Dylan was going around with him during that same visit to these other clubs where there was no photo, there was no video or even audio. So like, you know, it may have been just as transcendent or just as important in the moment, but they're sort of lost to history just because there's no way for any of us to experience them beyond hearing someone like Martin tell you about them. Speaking of audio, you uh, talked to the guy who installed the the microphone in the gaslight. I'm I'm blanking on his name right now, but that he was, uh, you know, th there's a, a Monk recording and a and a Sonny Rollins recording from that period that was only basically in, the microphone was in the roof for about a month and it, it happened to catch Dylan there. Uh, you know, these kinds of 
fortuitous things where maybe if someone hadn't thought to do it or, you know, like in those two clubs in England with Martin Carthy, if someone hadn't t- taken a picture, you wouldn't have these kind of pieces th- of information to kind of suss out and, and piece together sort of the the linear story of Dylan. Yeah, um, that's absolutely true. I mean, that one of his name's Richard Alderson. He got he captured this one Dylan recording very early on. It circulated as a bootleg for years. It was released officially as a live album. You can stream it on Spotify now. Bob Dylan live at the Gaslight, right? But this was probably one of 20 similar performances Bob Dylan gave that month, right? And it's just that the other 19, poof, they just vanished. No, no cat no one captured them. Luckily, he happened to capture this one. And so now it's this sort of iconic early Bob Dylan recording. And that's been you know, you talked earlier on about the about the tapes, the the sort of fans, the tapers capturing this stuff year after year for decades has been an invaluable source, kind of like with the Grateful Dead of just Dylan knowledge. And it's striking that, you know, his own office, his own record label now often releases these fan captured recordings themselves officially. They don't have it. It's because a fan captured it that it exists. Yeah. Um, and, and then you've got, you know, some source material, some photos and stuff like that from people, you know, who who at the time knew him and, and hung out with him and stuff. Like, was it easy enough to just ask and get those things from them? Or like, was that a process too? Yeah, that was, it was a process. Um, some, yeah, some people, some of the people just sent me the photos, which was easy, but a lot of them, I just had to find the photographers and sort of suss them out myself. It was, but it was important to me to include the photos Partly because, again, with some exceptions, these are not household names. And I didn't want one interview to sort of blur to the next and you can't remember who and what era. And so seeing these people, not just by themselves, but in every case, they're with Bob Dylan. So you can see how old Bob Dylan is. You can see what he looks like during their sort of window, I thought really helped put their interview in context and sort of give you a picture of what we're talking about. So, uh, I mean, obviously, one of the more famous you know, incidents in Bob's history is the Newport when he, you know, goes electric and people lose their minds. Uh, but you, you also talked to the guy who played bass for two gigs right after that, one in New York and one in LA where in New York, everyone loses their minds in a bad way. And in LA, everyone loses their minds in a good way. Uh, I'm curious about kind of like how much you knew about those performances before talking to him and, and how much like was, discovered in the in the discussion i discovered a lot i mean it's funny in some ways the first performance immediately after newport was even rowdier than newport in newport people booed and yelled in forest hills a couple weeks later people literally stormed the stage and were like knocking over instruments and stuff but again talking about things being captured not being captured newport you can go watch it with great video, you can listen to it. This Forest Hills show, there is a fan-captured tape that sounds absolutely awful. It is pretty much unlistenable. And as a result, this concert, which again, in a lot of ways was rowdier than Newport was, uh, just isn't very well known. So it was it was wonderful hearing someone who was on the stage who was being jostled and pushed by these crazed folk fans, you know, tell me about it. And that, basically that was his only two performances with Dylan, right? Like that that... And then he started because he was, a, I guess, a rock jazz guy who ended up going back to Chicago for gigs and basically didn't play with him again for, for decades. Well, that's um, 
that's Barry Goldberg. That he he was the one at Newport. Harvey Brooks, the bassist, who Brooks was at, is who um, I'm thinking of. Yeah, at yeah, yeah. Forest yeah, Hills. he it was his only two live performances. He recorded on the Highway 61 album shortly before, and then did a little bit on the New Morning album a few years later. But yeah, it was this sort of in between where there's half of the band. There is Robbie Robertson on guitar, and there is Lee Von Helm on drums, but not the other half. You know, and so basically after these two performances. Uh, someone I think I think the band shared a manager with Dylan. Someone says, "Hey, you should just talk to the whole." And they were called the Hawks then. Don't just have Robbie and Levon, but get the other two guys too. So by the time there's a tour set up, Harvey Brooks is out, and they've brought in Rick Danko on bass along with the entire Hawks. So that's why he was only there for these random two shows. And Goldberg was the organist, right? That was playing at Newport, and then yeah, he ended up right. he ended up babysitting Dylan's kids and getting him to yeah, record like, his record. Yeah, like a decade later, he's one of these people who, like a number of people in the book, sort of comes in and out over years or decades. Yeah, there's, there's folks who seem to orbit around him and kind of come back into his life, is kind of getting the the through line of that. Like, how much of that was just like, did you did you know kind of when at certain points they came in and out of his life? Like, was there a really strong record of like how often they'd intersected with Bob? There was, if it was in terms of a public performance, you know, so I knew when I would go into an interview, I knew every single time they had recorded with Dylan, they had appeared on stage with Dylan, right? Those are public. You can figure that out. What I didn't necessarily know is the time he babysat Bob Dylan's kids for a week. You know, that's not that's not a public uh, recorded thing. So that's the sort of thing, anything that's sort of totally off stage that doesn't involve, you know, them touring together or something. I wouldn't necessarily have known about and they would tell me. So when they do tell you something like that, like are you, are you tempted to just like hard pivot towards those kinds of topics or because this is, you know, mostly about like Dylan's performance and about like the live thing that maybe you just kind of like let that go. I'm not sure I ever let anything go in these interviews. At least I try <laughs> not to. Okay. You listen back to the tape and of course every now and then you, you hear some, ah, how did I not follow up on that? But I try to, you know, if someone starts a story like that, I try to say, you know, tell me more. Right, right. Um, the, as you said, you know, like the the focus is people who've played with Dylan and, and very often on, on stage. Uh, you get a, a great kind of thing about, you know, um, man, and I'm blanking on who it was. I made I made notes, but I, I, I kept the quote with didn't attribute it to the right person. But yeah, talking we'll about. see if I remember. You know, he did uh, a couple of uh, takes for a recording. This is like one of the, I guess it was on the Highway 61 sessions. Did He says, we did, he did a few takes and he liked it. Didn't bother him, let's put it that way. But then when it came to touring, we did extensive rehearsals for the two concerts. And it seems like recurrently that when I read other people's, you know, remembrances, there was much more work put into what a tour would sound like and what, the the live performance would sound like than the record initially would get that like bob was happy pretty quickly with the record and not necessarily unhappy but like much more concerned about getting it right before they went on tour it was, was that yeah you i think that's on? that is and i mean bob dylan himself has said that a number of times over the years quotes to the effect of how he basically makes the records so that he can go on tour like that his primary interest and motivation is is the live shows versus the records and yeah it's it's it sort of that was something that struck me given how 
spontaneous his shows are hit and miss sometimes you know it doesn't seem like a it's not this is not james brown this doesn't seem like a very tightly rehearsed band at times but they do rehearse but like fred tackett a guitarist you know who did some of dylan's gospel stuff he talked about they rehearsed for weeks before the tour but dylan assigned them all sorts of covers to rehearse that he did not plan on playing in concert so that he and the band are rehearsing sweet caroline and Night Moves by Bob Seger and The Rainbow Connection, none of which they're actually playing on tour. But Fred said basically the idea was Dylan wanted the band really gelled, really tight, really good at playing together, but didn't want them to run his own songs into the ground. So they just sort of were sounding the same every night. So they rehearse all these covers. Then they go on stage and play all these songs they have not rehearsed. So getting reps as as a unit without drilling down into the Dylan songs and, and killing killing any vibe that they can get on the stage? Yeah, someone else told me basically he doesn't want you to get a part. He doesn't want you to know, all right, on this song, I'm going to do this drum fill every single time after mm. verse number two. That's exactly what he doesn't want. So, yeah, rehearse different songs so that that doesn't happen. So it becomes so predictable that on any night, the the recording of one night could be the recording of the next night. Precisely. Yeah. Were there any like particular surprises when you were talking to folks? Like I know you did a lot of research. Was there anything that completely took you aback or you know surprised you oh there were a ton given how much research i did i was every interview i feel like i was surprised i mean but one very dramatic example and one where i couldn't do any research was this one woman emailed me uh, from the newsletter i i had done a poll and of my subscribers and one of the questions was who should i interview and people said you know well they suggested all sorts of people but one person said me i was like me who are you <laughs> And I Googled her and a little bit came up. She's an Australian musician, but I didn't find anything in connection with Bob Dylan. But I, she said something that made me think it was legit. So I called her up and she had this amazing story about how she met Dylan in when he was touring with Tom Petty and they had this whole conversation. You know, she was a sort of up and coming local musician. Then he invites her to open a show without ever having heard any of her music. And she ends up sort of going to some other shows. And, you know, she sent me some physical documentation that sort of proved this but she said you know she hadn't told the story for you know 30 some odd years you know for the same reasons most people are reluctant she didn't want to violate his privacy but she was a subscriber to my newsletter and she just felt that i was the person to finally share it with and again that the whole thing surprised me because i couldn't really do any research i just sort of called her up and said so uh what's your story and just this long thing unfolded and it was amazing did that kind of test you to like have no no information and no research to, like if, because you've kind of set yourself up with these other ones you've done for the newsletter to, to have to kind of go in blind? Is that a vastly different kind of thing for you? Yeah, that definitely tests me. I'm, you know, I'm a type A. I want to research a lot. I want to have this long list of questions and going in with basically a blank page because because there's no information out there uh, definitely tested me. But uh but, you know, you just treat it like a conversation, like someone's telling you the story at a bar or something and you respond how you would then and just try to make sure, you know, if, if it jumps around, that's fine. But try to remember, all right, she sort of didn't really follow up on this thing she said earlier. So let's take a note to go back there and just make sure you get the whole story. And I think we had a couple of follow ups to sort of fill in some pieces, too. Yeah, you do write in the in the preface that you did several interviews with some folks. How many like were there so, somewhere it was just like, I don't have everything I need to go back to them or it was. It was something like that where it's like I didn't I didn't get all of that and I need to get all of that. Yeah, it was mostly that sort of thing. In a couple, it was just for a sort of prosaic reason, which is 
some of the Rolling Thunder people I had interviewed for a series I did originally the newsletter all about Rolling Thunder. So we really focused on that. Well, in some cases, they did other things with Dylan. And so I said, hey, I know, you know, when we first talked a year ago, it was just for this Rolling Thunder thing. But you actually played with him two other times that we kind of ignored. So let's talk about those two for the book. Sure enough. Well, it's a very expansive book. Uh, it's a very interesting book. A lot of great conversations. Pledging my time. Ray Padgett, thanks for making time today. And uh, congratulations on the book. Thanks so much for having me. It's been fun.
Back here on Thank God It's Free Range, you just heard Heartbeat from their album Salt. Half Moon Run, who are coming to Winnipeg in November, playing the Burton Cumming Theatre. And uh, as it stands, we'll be having them on this show sometime in October in the lead-up to that show. Uh, date TBD, but uh, definitely plans are in the works. Before that, from Montreal, Jalous with uh, 11e CL, I believe is the pronunciation of Natchez uh single. Really love that track. A couple of mellow ones. 
Uh, we're going to pick things up a little bit before we hand things over to After 8 Radio. Got something from Alberta Band Slowly Becoming. It's the title track to Before the World Ends. And then from uh, The Clientele. Somehow I missed the boat on this record when it came out at the end of July. It's called I'm Not There Anymore out on Merge. going to play you my favorite track, Lady Grey. And then something I have not missed the boat on. It's a brand new single out today from Lael Neal forthcoming album we'll hear the single i'll be your star we got a couple more we can squeeze in before we hand things over to kai uh keep it locked here on 101.5 umfm
Dead like a rat at the edge of my heart 